Welcome to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maxwell Cooper, and in this podcast series, I interview physicians, medical innovators, and entrepreneurs making an impact on healthcare. This podcast is produced by DaVinci Academy, a multimedia medical education company that provides podcasts, video courses, and digital textbooks. You can see more on our website, www.dbiacademy.com and our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash C slash DaVinci Academy Med. This podcast is sponsored by Doc2Doc, the personal lending platform designed for doctors by doctors. Do you have some big expenses in the near future? Maybe you're moving, applying to residency or fellowship, fixing up your car or home, or starting a new practice. Doc2Doc believes that traditional lenders overestimate the risk of lending money to doctors, residents, and medical students, focusing too much on the challenges of their financial past and giving them insufficient credit for the promise of their financial future. Check out Dr. Doc's personal loan options at drdoclending.com slash DaVinci. Hey everybody, welcome back to the DaVinci Hour podcast. I'm honored this week to be joined by Dr. John Adler, who is a Emeritus Professor of Neurosurgery at Stanford and a serial entrepreneur, inventor of multiple medical devices, including the CyberKnife. And then he's also the co-founder of Curious and the editor-in-chief, which is the uh, largest open access uh, medical journal in the world and one of the fastest growing and was recently just acquired by the Nature Group. So congratulations, Dr. Adler, and welcome to the podcast. Really happy to have you here. Um, so I gave you a little bit of an introduction, but maybe tell us a little bit about you know where you went to school, where you did your residency, and maybe what your the focus of your clinical practice was. Okay. And one more thing in my uh, my background is- sure. Currently CEO and founder of Zap Surgical, which I hope is going to be my best run yet. And it's one of the reasons I decided I had to pivot just from working, we're running two companies, both Curious and Zap, just to Zap right now. Oh, so cool. um, I'm a middle class uh, upbringing in uh, northern Connecticut, far away from the financial centers in a small little town of a few thousand people. And uh, had the good luck of going to Harvard and kind of seeing the bigger world there. And I uh, did all my medical school and training at Harvard. And uh, during a kind of a seminal fellowship year, I went to uh, Stockholm, uh, where I was introduced to the concept of radiosurgery and met uh, Lars Lexell, who I would argue is one of the great neurosurgical minds of the 20th century, and got swept away by the idea of non-invasive surgery. And uh, it was my determination to find a, a place where I could do a next generation product that I ended up at Stanford. And so I've been at Stanford for 35 plus years, live on campus there still, still have a role in, in teaching and doing some research, but uh, I've not been a clinical practitioner for about 10 years at Stanford. Excellent. Excellent. So when you were practicing, was did you do the full gamut of neurosurgery? It's, I know it's a very broad field, or was there a particular area you like to focus in? Well, I really was the full gamut. And one point I was actually the, uh, the busiest pediatric neurosurgeon at Stanford, but I, and I early on trained in cerebral vascular and, and because of my interest in kind of innovation and commercialization uh, and particularly the field of radiosurgery, I ended up developing disproportionate practice in skull base surgery and, and the congenital tumors, the fake helmetosis like uh, NF. F2 and uh, von Hippel-Lindau, these patients get serial tumors and, you know, open surgery is just so 
kind of destructive to their quality of life. While the radio surgery, the con the tools that I've developed uh, were a big deal for them. And uh, so one of the things that I hope to talk about is how in my career, my innovative spirit and my ability to commercialize uh, technologies uh, both fostered a research career inside uh, academia and also uh, built my clinical practice. It all kind of was a, a seamless whole, something that the university itself ties, knots, ties itself in knots over because they Everything needs to be nicely compartmentalized because some things are quote unquote filled with a conflict of interest. But in the end, my only conflict of interest is trying to figure out how to take care, better care of patients. That's amazing. I'm curious, did you always have kind of this innovative drive? Like, did you, did, was this something you wanted to do very early on or was it more just observing like clinical needs that you felt were there and, and you felt like you could find solutions for? Well, you can't go be a neurosurgeon and not feel hopeless sometimes about how little we had to offer some Case in point is, you know, glioblastoma, where the survival is beyond bleak. So, yeah, and we certainly, I mean, that that struck me as being frustrating, not just for me, but for patients facing these life-altering situations. But I, I don't think, I never imagined that a person could change that. I mean, that was somebody elsewhere, you know, kind of elsewhere general where these problems were solved. And it wasn't really until I went to the Karolinska Institute and I worked with Lars Lexell that I met a person who was actually defining the standards of surgery and not just defining, redefining and making it possible to treat things in dramatically new ways. And when I said saw that, I said, hell, this is the coolest stuff I've ever seen. And uh, I just wanted in. Not only did I want in in the field of radio surgery, which became my subspecialty, but I wanted in and creating the tools of the future. That's really cool. I mean, you really were on the, the ground floor of what became really innovative technology. I'm curious, when you started out as, uh, you know, like a young faculty at Stanford, I guess, how did you get started, you know, building, you know, the early prototypes for what became the cyber knife? I mean, did you like what type of who did you recruit to help you? And, you know, how did you end up forming? What kind of was the impetus for forming the company as well? Well, there was certainly good luck in going to Stanford. Um, I knew Stanford is an innovative place, but had no idea that, that all the right tools to build a company would be not just Stanford, but, you know, kind of so the adjacent Silicon Valley. I mean, literally within a mile and a half of my my uh, home with, that I eventually purchased uh, was kind of developed, uh, the, the modern linear accelerator was developed, which became kind of a, a center point of what I needed. So um, I can't say there wasn't just a lot of luck in life, but, uh, you know, as they all say, you know, luck fa you know, favors the prepared mind. And so I was ready to take advantage of it. So I fell in the, I, certainly the seeds fell in the right soil. I did not have any kind of mentor, which is kind of unfortunate. And I think most, most innovators are a little more lucky than me. And um, I had to learn things going along and making a lot of mistakes and being pretty naive. And as I like to say, naivete is a blessing in some respects, because if you knew how hard these things were to start with, you wouldn't go off and do them. So um, I just kind of stumbled along. And I, like most academics, my first impetus was to work inside the university. And so, you know, I wrote like young junior faculty assiduously wrote, you know, little research grants and bigger research grants and, and got rejection after rejection after rejection. And um, yeah, well, I was able to get a little bit of money, but nothing to really 
start to build out the dreams that I had. And, uh, and so the next impetus is to sort of go to the big companies, you know, because big companies have money and so you go to GE and Philips and Siemens and those kind of companies. And of course they looked at what I was trying to do and that I had some risk and big companies don't do risk, you know? So that's that risk for their eyes is you go, go back to the government. So I was stuck between, you know, government grants, which didn't give a damn what I was doing. It was kind of out of the mainstream of thinking and big companies that thought what I was proposing was too risky. And so, and this is what entrepreneurs do is you suddenly realize there are no other paths. You got to create your own path and um, start small and humble. And it was a lot of the first dollars were always your own. Not that I was a wealthy, I was just, you know, I still had, you know, educational loans I was paying off. So at the time I was rel relatively heavily in debt compared to most other uh, medical students and residents, but uh, still you could find a way to spring free 10,000, 20,000 here you know, to get things started. And then eventually um, once things got fleshed out a little bit more, had a patent or two, uh, I was able to start building a business and, uh, and did it in conjunction with people who understood small startups, but who had never themselves built anything substantial. And it usually was the blind leading the blind in this case, because they knew nothing about my business and, and I knew little about theirs and no one had been very successful in life. And so, uh, but you know, that's, you just keep putting one step in front of the next. And if you keep doing it long enough before you know it, you're the top of Mount Everest. So that's kind of what we did. That's awesome. I'm curious. Um, how did you, I guess, go about recruiting like, you know, business minded people, you know, to help kind of get the company up and going, you know, how did you, you know, as a busy physician, how did, you know, how did you, did you kind of just tap into your network? And I guess, what was your process maybe for de deciding who to work with and who not to work with? I wish I could say I had a process, you know, now I can, if I start a new company, I can have more of a process. But when I was, you know, young junior faculty, I was just excited that anyone found value in any of my ideas. I remember thinking if someone would actually buy me a cup of coffee to hear my ideas, I, that's pretty cool. Someone's even listening to me. There was a business guy I did tap into, and actually in hindsight, a very important business guy. He was um, he was one of the founders of uh, venture capital in Silicon Valley, but he was really had been retired at this point. And I met him in a hot tub at one of my uh, colleagues' house. Uh, so and uh, And he tried to help me early on, but all he mostly did was said that, John, you're a natural entrepreneur. You'll figure it out. <laughs> and so he gave me some encouragement there, uh, but no real business help or advice. But I mostly started working with technologists. And so early on, they were all engineers who had built these, you know, Silicon Valley was at least 30, 40 years ago filled with lots of small companies that were did a few million dollars a year in business, you know, contract research for the government or for defense companies or maybe medical device companies, but they were small. They're small and almost mom and pop operations. And that's who I started to work with, a company called Schomburg Radiation. And um, I mean, their business was doing maybe one and a half, two million dollars a year. And and uh, we wrote some grants with them. And that's kind of how we got started. Of course, no one there was really a businessman. In fact, I had more business credentials just in terms of way I was thinking about the world than they did. But uh, together, we cobbled together the start of a business and then and in time brought in more accomplished technology business types. I mean, I think it's a mistake 
in an early stage R&D company to bring in real business minds. There's too much just hard work to do that before you start thinking about selling, you got to you got to get a, a prototype together and you got to fail a lot and you and just don't know what you don't know. And the businessmen, they come in, they want to create a master plan with lots of PowerPoint presentations and show you how you're all going to you know, make billions of dollars. And there's, there's just, it doesn't happen right away. And you need to struggle with technologists before you kind of drag in business types. That makes a lot of sense. Um, so I assume this w- was what ended up going on to become Accuray, which was your, Correct. which, which is your first company, right? So I guess maybe take us through, you know, cause you were essentially from day one till, you know, for a very long time, you know, either the CEO or the chief medical officer, I guess, how did you balance that with your clinical practice? How did you balance running a, a company? <laughs> and then I guess, how did, how did the university feel about that? And how did you kind of manage that as well? <laughs> you know, in hindsight, I kind of can't figure it out myself. Um, I think what worked very well for me and what I early, early on commented was that every thread kind of reinforced the other. So the research that I did with the company re- reinforced my research mission with the company. My um, the technology reinforced reinforced my clinical practice, and um, and I in the process was you know an academic who published and did research, so it, and I made a lot of money for people, and so in the end universities are just businesses. They like to pretend to be idealistic entities that do much more than worry about money, but in fact all they care about is money. And so I always found a, what I did made everybody a lot of money. And so that made them happy. But I would sometimes even conducted a board meeting, you know, from the operating room. You know, I, um, I, generally I was participating in the board meeting, you know, while my residents were sort of maybe opening some patient's head, I would be over a little seeing it and supervising. And that was more than some of my colleagues were doing who were, you know, running two or three rooms at the same time, which I don't like. And it was a lot easier to kind of supervise a resident in the operating room, running a board meeting, than it, uh, it, I could dual task. And I think that's an extreme example. But I was always able to, with a little bit of ingenuity, kind of make all three work together. And I can't say I've met many people who've done exactly what I've done, but I'm living testimony to testament to prove you can do it. And I was one of the, for a few years, I was maybe the busiest surgeon in the Stanford Nurse Department. That's amazing. Well, that answers my my next question was, did you ever go part-time? Which I, if you were the busiest neurosurgeon, I, I imagined you'd never went part-time. Or, uh, well, eventually I had to leave the university, took a leave of absence. Uh, first, it started with a um, sabbatical. And then they, I liked the sabbatical because I got a half salary, but then you're not supposed to do that at the university. So they got pissed <laughs> at me and said, no, you got to take a full leave of absence. So eventually I did take almost three years of, sabbatical leave of absence to go run accurate at kind of its depths of despair when the former CEO abruptly quit because he thought he was too rich a man to to have to put up with the bullshit that you had to as CEO of accurate. Interesting. And I think that's an interesting point you made about balancing it using the innovative work you were doing with accurate to generate great research. And I think, you know, like you said, the the universities, as long as you're, I imagine as long as you're publishing and you know, getting grants and, you know, presenting at meetings and things like that, that, that keeps everybody happy there. I'm curious also from, 
the standpoint of you went on to found uh, Zap Surgical, which is the company you said you know you're working on now, which is working on similar you know technology, obviously an evolution of what you did before. I'm curious, what did you learn from your experience with Accuray that you're now applying to uh, Zap Surgical? I'd like to think I've learned a lot, but many days I think I've learned nothing. So um, just in just in further response to the last question, I should point out that I did follow the letter of the law of Stanford. So I was never managing executive while also faculty. So at Stanford, you could you couldn't have a a direct level of authority. So I was always, you know, I could be chairman, but I couldn't be CEO. And so I juggled those roles. Ironically, just because I was founder, I ended up having more influence sometimes than even the CEO much of the time. So that's how I led that balance. But, you know, what have I learned? Well, this time around, I am no longer a faculty member. So I um, I knew to run the company, I had to be full-time. And, and that's a great loss. I mean, a surgeon who's dedicated much of his life to operating um, loses something very special uh, when you stop operating. And and I feel that a lot. I, I miss patient care a lot. So, uh, but it has given me the opportunity to be more focused. Um, I also was really reluctant to start the company until I found a much better financial base of to support operations. And I found that uh, in conjunction with the Foxconn Corporation, which makes the consumer electronics you may well be looking at this talk on. Um, and But even there, I mean, it's, it's still a struggle. I mean, we're going in the current economic downturn. This is a tough time for all companies. And so I... I promised myself I'd never go through hard financial times again, but uh, lo and behold, you know, it's not like I'm swimming in money. So I wish I had dreamed this time around that would be the case, but no, it was not. Um, I, I was a much better position this time around to much more sophisticated technologists right from the start. And that's why I think uh, Zap built such a complex technology in a relatively short period of time. But uh, once again, I even here, we underestimated just how complete the product was. And so even though we thought we've been selling the product for a couple of years, it's, it still takes meaningful work to get a, a product to the level of reliability and performance that, you know, many of us expect from commercial products. And so, you know, you, you tell yourself in every startup, little lies along the way to keep yourself going. And they're not meant not devious. They're just, you know, part of life. I think all of us, when you, before you have a child, for example, you always tell yourself that, you know, okay, this child is going to be a, going to sleep through the night. This child is going to eat the meals I give this child. You know, this child is never going to act up at school, you know, just, and that's just not how life is. And companies are a lot like children. You know, they, they, every now and then they break your heart, but in the long run, they make you very happy and proud. That's a that's an interesting analogy. <laughs> yeah, it's essentially that that's I guess akin to what they say, like the life cycle of the company, if 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 you will. I'm curious the in terms of funding, I guess what what do you look for, you know, especially now that you've done this multiple times, when you go out to raise money from investors, I guess, you know, obviously when you get past, you know, the early phase of friends or family or colleagues, I guess who do you who what type of investors do you like people with like previous medical device experience or do you like more passive investors that kind of just you know, let you do your thing. I guess, how do you kind of go about that process? 
Well, I mean, the dream investor is somebody who understands medical devices and just writes checks whenever you need them. And um, the only time I ever encountered that investor was me and curious. So, I mean, I was able to, you know, disproportionately, I didn't fund it entirely, but disproportionately funded curious with myself and my uh, co-founder, who's also a neurosurgeon in Germany with our own money. And it was by far the best funding experience ever. Um, yeah, don't get me wrong. Again, we repeatedly underestimate how much capital we required, but we had within us the capacity to just write that extra check. And it hurts. I mean, you got to write these, some of these were big checks and, and uh, I mean, seven figure checks. So they're, you know, and I'm not that wealthy a guy that that doesn't hurt, but in the end we put it together and whenever there was money needed, we were able to backstop the company. And so it gives, believe me, it's, it's very comforting take money from friends. And I did from all my companies, then you start, oh, well, I can't screw over my friends. You know, this, it becomes, there's a whole new added pressure when you take money from friends. And then um, when you do take money from friends, the sheer commitment that you feel towards your friends is probably the sort of commitment you should feel towards every investor, even if it's an institutional investor. I mean, your money, their money, you want to treat it with utter respect. Now, it's easiest to take money, you think, from big institutional investors because there isn't as, as strong a, a bond or connection. Ah, it's, you know, it's, it's institutional money. It's everybody's money. Then it's nobody's money. Uh, but then it comes with strings attached. And these people are very, very powerful. And they're in a capacity to, you know, they can start making decisions for your business. So, um, I mean, I guess the dream scenario is someone who knows a lot about medical devices and just trust you. Um, and they are big, they're cap capable of writing big checks. I haven't met anybody like that yet. So, uh, but if you know anybody, please have them call me up. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Cause I was curious, you know, uh, you know, do you look at investors as, as like, I guess, mentors or, or co-founders, or is it more kind of just a separate, uh, kind of just a source of financial, uh, capital, if you will. Well, hmm. again, the dream scenario is that they're co-founders and mentors, but, uh, all too often your interests diverge. I mean, if you're, venture capital or private equity guy, you're in a five, six, seven year cycle. And, you know, you've, they've got, you know, their own owners, their limited partners who are, you know, looking at the end of this fund life cycle, they want to see a big uptick, you know, and sure. they're in my way of thinking they're so short-sighted. I mean, the, the true life cycle of a medical device, of a meaningful company, of a meaningful company, you know, not these food delivery services or so much <laughs> of, you know, these, cryptocurrency things that where it's a Ponzi scheme. I mean, I think, and, and I'm serious, you know, not that I'm not injured. I personally have, think there's something in crypto, but so sure. many of these companies are so short-term focused. And it's because they meet the needs of the venture capitalists and they don't meet the needs of society mm -hmm. in a business. And so the real business cycle, I think time is at least a decade and more likely 15 years before you go from inception of company to a, a meaningful liquidity event, generally like an IPO, and yet that 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 time frame doesn't work at all in these for these private equity people. It doesn't work for it, and there's a total disconnect between the needs of the money people and the needs of the business. And that that tension is it's painful, and it's it's and I kind of understand how we got there. So best I would argue the best dream scenario is is a big rich angel, who who can throw lots of money at something and who have a maybe different motivation to invest. You know, they generally they're so rich that while they always want to be richer, the the more money isn't necessarily as important as the success of a company.
But then the rich angel ideally has a lot of knowledge, domain knowledge. And there ain't many rich angels who have a lot of domain knowledge in the medical device world, much less the big therapeutic devices that I work with. I mean, it's just that that area hasn't had entrepreneurs for a couple generations. Sure, sure. I'm curious when you go to find your business partners or your co-founders, because you know, you could almost look at these as like a marriage. I mean, it's, you know, it's a legally binding oh, yeah. agreement. And, you know, this is like you said, this is not, you know, a one or two year thing. This is a long-term thing. Uh, I'm curious, what do you look for in your, your co-founders? They're like family, you know, you want to be able to trust them and ideally you can go away and they will do treat your company with as much respect as you would. I mean, you'd, it, you'd like, like, who do you trust with your children? But if you have children, you know, you don't just trust them with anybody. And, uh, I think I think of my companies for in the same light. They are like children and they require that measure of respect and care and suffering. <laughs> I want to jump gears here a little bit to, you know, you spent, you know, you you did a lot of the work with acad- in academia, obviously, you know, both publishing and then obviously the innovative. I guess what do you think are the pros and cons of doing innovation in academia versus like private practice? Because people could say, well, in academia, you have all these resources and then, but then private practice, you maybe don't, you know, you in many cases own your own intellectual property, but it may not be as clear cut of path. I guess, what are your thoughts on that? That's an excellent question. And I salute you for asking it. So, um, you know, once upon a time, the only place where you could innovate was academia. And, um, and you're right, you know, big medical schools have this large array of resources which is it's just a blessing so many smart people and you know just just it's amazing what what a big medical school can bring to uh innovation the problem is it's so trapped inside bureaucracy and 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 from my perspective conflicts of interest i mean from while they're obsessed with your conflicts of interest i'm obsessed with theirs because you have this array of bureaucrats who have to show that they're important and and they just get in the way of every decision. And so things just move ponderously slow. And in the end, you know, a lot of smart money just runs away from universities. Now, some big drug concepts, I think, you know, where you still probably need universities, to, you need a license from them. I mean, the NIH has pumped so much drug discovery type money into universities. And so they, they have some really cool intellectual property. But in the medical devices, I think universities give almost nothing, provide nothing, bring nothing to the table. And I think you're seeing this. I think more and more meaningful innovations all leaving university. Tra- true translational research in medical devices is no longer done in universities. It's just too bureaucratic and too expensive and you get nothing. And yet in, in private practice, if you you may need to work harder to cobble together the resources that the intellectual resources, but they're there. And in the end, you're free, you have, you have freedom. There's nothing like liberty. And so this may not be true for all specialties, but but I'll certainly, you can see it like in ophthalmology, plastic surgery, um, uh, orthopedics. Um, it's all lefty. There's no more real innovation going on in the university in terms of commercializable products. I can't speak about interventional radiology. Well, no, but um, um, I'm testament to the fact that you even complex medical devices like you know, radio surgery tools, which are as complex as anything in medicine, um, I'm doing much of the R and D at community centers, and they're they're more productive than the big academic institutions. So I've I think it's it's um, it's unfortunate so much of 
modern medicine, especially in 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 the United States, is is now strictly under the purview of big big institutions. Um, but I hope that the pendulum is going to start swinging back in the other direction because I think true innovation is going to need the private practice to reinvigorate because it's not going to happen in academia. Yeah, that's an interesting you know comment you made how it's it's tending it's leaving academia. I, I think in IR we're seeing the same thing. You know, a lot of the the earlier big ideas, like you said, were were built at the big medical centers, and now you're seeing more and more physicians out in you know independent practice or part of groups developing innovative technologies. That's that's amazing. I'm curious as as we wrap up here, um, I guess what's your I guess advice for you know you know a young physician out there? They've got the idea. They, you know, I guess, how do you, how do you know if, if, it, if this is an idea that you should go with, I guess, is it that it never leaves you or I guess, cause I imagine you came up with many ideas over, over the years, I guess, what made you pick the ones you ended up going with? Well, I like what you just said. It never leaves you. So when you start obsessing over something, that's a good sign, but I guess I would challenge all these innovators to also take a next step and make sure that it, it has impact in the world. There's a lot of small ideas, which um, which are okay too. Don't get me wrong. I any idea that people want to adopt and you know and uh, seem to be bought in the market marketplace of ideas is probably a good thing. And so I don't want to discourage anybody. But if your idea is not only you're passionate about it and you can see it having transformative effect in the world, then I think those are the ideas to jump on. But do not expect an easy path. Um, and that's kind of my life story is that these are very, very difficult things to do. And by far the biggest challenge in my life. So, you know, and I, people generally, they look back in their life at my age and they say, well, my residency, that was the toughest thing I'd ever did. And, and residencies are pretty, tough. I was a neurosurgeon and arguably one of the more tough neurosurgery programs in the country. Um, but it's not nearly as tough as a startup. So startup, the trouble with startups is you have that, indeterminate need to work. You have amazing risk. It can all fall apart at the end of it. And um, and you don't have, like you do with residency, you know, six or seven year timelines. Hey, with, if I can just survive here seven years, I, I'm board certified and I can go, you know, hang my shingle. None of that's true in startup life. In fact, you could do seven, 10, 15 years and end up having nothing to show for it. So if you're going to take that risk, if you're going to take that risk, um, then I think it should be meaningful to you and it should be meaningful to the world. Um, but if you do it and you do it right, you can, you'll never be more proud. And so as, you know, as I sit here right now, we talk, there are, you know, patients being treated many locations of the world using things that I, I invented or made. And I didn't, of course I had lots of people helping me, but that's a very good feeling. And, uh, arguably from a professional standpoint, the best feeling of my life. That's amazing. That really is amazing. Well, my last question I ask everybody is when you're not building medical devices or, or doing neurosurgery, what are, what are your passions outside of work? How do you, how do you find that balance if there is one? <laughs> well, that's a big challenge in life. And I have to argue that I've, um, I failed miserably there, but I'm, I'm actually working hard to remedy that right now. So I'm right in Baltimore about to buy a place next to my group. And kids are my grandkids are an important part of my life and think of getting getting a boat i did try to surf for many years try is the better is the better descriptive but then i still try to stay fit and still you know you know you only got one body might as well take care of it and there's a, a joy in that so collectively i have to say i've 
could have done a better job of having, but as you know, as I really comment on doing what I did in blending together so many different tasks at the same time was a challenge unto itself. But uh, call, check back with me in a couple of years. I'll tell you how I'm doing. <laughs> That's awesome. Awesome. Well, I guess the last thing is where, where can people connect with you or, or find out more about what you're doing with both Zap Surgical and, and Curious and then even just connect with you? Well, if they want, they can just reach out to my Stanford email. It's, it's simple, J-R-A, John Robert Adler, J-R-A at stanford.edu. Or they can find me on LinkedIn too. LinkedIn is always a good resource. Perfect. Perfect. We will link these. Well, Dr. Adler, really appreciate you taking the time. Thanks for joining us. Max, a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DaVinci Hour podcast presented by DaVinci Academy. Please be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow the podcast on your podcast platform of choice to catch the latest episodes. Please leave a comment or review and share it with a friend. Lastly, you can find all of our podcasts, video courses, and books on our website, dviacademy.com. Thank you for listening.